We're talking about uh, discovering how to interpret the Bible. You've been so faithful on Sunday nights and glad to see you here again tonight. We did a general introduction on the issues involved in interpreting the Bible, and then we dealt last week with the canon to tell us about why we have the books that we have, the books of the Old Testament, how that canon was formed, those 39 books, and then we looked at the new text and see how the New Testament was formed of those 27 books. And we talked about how the Catholic scriptures were a little bit different than the Protestant scriptures. And if you were paying attention this morning, I slipped in one of those Catholic books. Did you catch that? I, I didn't say it was inspired or authoritative, but I had a hero story from Daniel. And so we picked up a heroine story from Judith. So I knew you would get it. I knew the Sunday morning only folks were lost, but you were on top of it and you knew I wasn't saying it was inspired. So we introduced it and then we talked about uh, the canon or the books we're trying to interpret. I want to begin tonight by talking about you and me, the interpreter. We know what the canon is. Now the question is, what about the interpreter? Are there any qualifications that will make one a better interpreter than having no qualifications at all? Well, first of all, to get the right interpretation, the interpreter must be a person of faith. To know what God has to say, you must know God. To know what God has to say, you must know God. Now, we want you to use excellent methodology, and we're filling your toolbox with a set of tools, the hammers, the saws, the screwdrivers, that you'll be able to come to the canon, the text, and rightly divide it or interpret it. But we need to know, along with those excellent methods and tools, you need to be a person of faith. There's a spiritual sensitivity that God gives those and only those who have faith in him. Faith is foundational for a full comprehension of scriptures. It's not the only qualification. And I want you to hear me say it does not guarantee the right interpretation. But if you don't have it, you're not going to get it right. You must have faith. The second thing I would say is obedience. Are you willing to put yourself under the text that you're interpreting? Are you willing to be obedient to that which you discover? Are you willing to walk down the path that's illuminated? I have often found, much to my own chagrin, that when I don't like an interpretation, I probably got the right one. You following that? I made up my mind a long time ago, uh, I wouldn't try to bend the interpretation to fit what I wanted it to be. So when you get that tough interpretation and say, does it really mean that? You're probably dead on it. It probably really does mean that. Are you willing to be obedient to the interpretation that you discover? Obedience. The next one is illumination. Are you willing to be illuminated by the Holy Spirit that dwells in you? The Bible speaks of the transformation that occurs within us because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's an internal operation within us as we gain the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That application, that illumination is only for those who are indwelt by the Holy 
Spirit of God. No interpretation really is fully true without illumination from the Holy Spirit. Now, illumination is important, but it cannot be the only tool in the toolbox. It's kind of a seasoning, you might say. In fact, uh, Origen started a method of interpretation that said, really, you needed no other mechanics or techniques. All you need to do was be illuminated by, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, and you would find the right interpretation. Well, men have tried that through the ages. Men and women have not always come up with the right interpretation. C.H. Spurgeon had something to say about that being the wrong way to approach it. In fact, in a book he's writing for budding preachers entitled A Chat About Commentaries, I want to give you a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. If you've never read much Spurgeon, he doesn't measure his words very carefully, so don't be offended. Put on your seatbelts. This is not me talking. This is the great C.H. Spurgeon, but this is what he says. I, you kind of wish you could speak this way today, but you can't. But Spurgeon could then, so we're quoting. Here we go. Of course... You're not such wise acres. Could you ever say that today? You're not such wise acres as to think of the ways that you can expound Scripture without the assistance from the works of divines and learned men who have labored before you in the field of interpretation. If you're that opinion, I pray you stay so, for you're not worth the trouble of conversion. Wow. I, I don't know about that part, but other than that, he's, he's pretty, pretty well. If you're that opinion, meaning if you think that you're just illuminated by the Holy Spirit and you don't care what, how anybody else has ever read that text before, you just stay that way. You're not even worth the trouble of converting. And like the little cadre who think with you would resent the attempt as an insult to your infallibility. Here's the kicker. It seems odd. There's certain men who talk so much of what the Holy Spirit reveals to themselves think so little of what he's revealed to others. Woo, there you go. It's odd that those who claim to think so much of what the Holy Spirit has revealed to them can, he's implying with arrogance, think so little about what the Holy Spirit has revealed to others. You're not the first person to pick up the book of Genesis or Matthew. Somebody might have worked hard and kind of plowed some ground for you. In a contemporary sermon, the preacher who thinks just his illumination and forget what everybody else thinks is the way to go would start a sermon something like this. If you hear this, you're either going to be entertained or you're going to turn off your TV because it's heresy. One of the two. Here we go. Dear friends, I've consulted no other books or human sources or worldly wisdom. I have looked at no commentaries. I have gone right to the Bible and only the Bible to see what it had to say for itself. Let me share with you what God showed me. It's kind of hard to, he's setting it up to where you can't disagree with him, you see. This is what God showed me. So it's him and God telling you what to do. You see how he pulled that on you? It's me and God telling you what to do. Never mind what God said to the reformers or contemporary scholars or the ancients about the text. It's what God has said to me. 
And let me tell you, I didn't hear what anybody else had to say. It's a, it's a pretty arrogant view, really. And unfortunately, some people who mean well and are deeply spiritual have come up with some very odd interpretations by thinking that it is, well, it's, it's just them and the Holy Spirit and nothing else is needed. Well, another qualification, not only illumination, but membership in a church. It is a community book. I'm not saying that it can't speak to you individually, but if it speaks to you individually, it first speaks to us corporately. You following me? There are a few books in the New Testament that are written to individuals, but even those were intended to be read to the church. Most of them would be like Paul, an epistle to those in Rome, Thessalonica, the Corinthians, those in Corinth, Ephesus, I can keep calling them out, the regions of Galatia, you know them all. They were to be written to a church even if individuals were addressed and even in the pastoral epistles with Timothy. Timothy's trying to organize churches and it's about churches and church work. It's not an individual letter. It is a community letter. And that's why when someone says, you know, I don't really need church to understand God's word. Just me, you know, under a tree with the Holy Spirit, and I got it. You might have something, but you don't have what Christ intended for you from his word. It is written to community. Old Testament's written community of ancient Israel. It's community. You, you, you see that? It's not individual. It is community. Thus saith the Lord God Almighty to his people. People Israel, people church. It's community. And when someone gets away from community, they're no longer held accountable to the community's interpretation. The best example I can think about in my own personal life was a gentleman by the name of David Koresh in Waco, Texas. He got away from community, started his own community that was built around him. You see, you get away from community, from the orthodox people of God, and you're going to have a heterodox reading. It's written for community, for church, read in church. I hold you accountable, you hold me accountable. You say, Pastor, how are we holding you accountable? You think I don't get emails on money? Now, what did you mean about that? And what does that mean? How can you read it that way? Yes, it's a two-way street. Trust me, it's a two-way street. You care about how I read it, I care about how you read it. If we had a renegade Sunday school teacher that all of a sudden was teaching something way off in left or right field, we'd say, now, wait a minute, let's talk about community and how the community might be reading the text. Also, for the interpreter, not only church membership, but appropriate methods. And that's some of the things that we will go through. It's prayer, it's illumination, but also appropriate methods reveal to you some facts in history that you otherwise would not have. How would you know that Baal was a fertility god worshipped by the Canaanites if you didn't study a little ancient history? Or how would you know that the Jews thought about Samaritans as half-breeds 
worse than Gentiles, and therefore you travel around Samaria, and when Jesus goes right through it and sits with a Samaritan woman at the well, how will you know the historical import of that unless you know the history of the relationship between the Jews and Samaritans, that when the Jews are deported, some people are left, the foreigners come in, they intermarry, we have a half-breed nation left, they have a different canon, a different text, they worship in a different place, and there's all sorts of animosity, and the Jews won't help them rebuild the temple, and, well, go look up Samaritans in a good Bible encyclopedia, and then you'll know when Jesus goes through Samaria, it means something. It means something. How would you know why we talk about women's head coverings in the book of Corinthians if you don't know a little bit about what that might indicate for a woman in that culture? How would you know that some people are eating just their veggies because they're afraid of Meat, well, not really afraid of meat. They're afraid that meat might have been sacrificed to an idol or been in properly or in a way that's not ritually pleasing, prepared, or that might even be the wrong animal that is forbidden. How would you know if you didn't know a little bit about the Jewish scruples, dietary restrictions, and laws? So appropriate methods. Another thing about the interpreter is presuppositions. Now, this is what's hard presuppositions. That's why I've said, I try to leave that, we all have presuppositions, I have presuppositions, but I try not to discount the interpretations that I don't like, and you must do the same. When Charlie Brown is staring up at the clouds, and Charlie Brown lays on his back, and he looks up, and he wants to see sheep and ducks, guess what he's going to see? Sheep and ducks. You see that? You, you can't come to the text and put yourself into the text. The idea, this hermeneutics class, this discovery class, is to help you pull out of the text. Are you with me? We want you to do exegesis, pull out, not eisegesis, put yourself in. It's, it's a big difference. We don't want you to come to the text with whatever fits your life or your lifestyle, whatever you want to do, and just... Read into it. That kind of reading is called reader interpretation. It says the meaning is in me. The meaning is not in the text, and therefore I can read it and make it mean anything I want to. In that case, it's not God speaking. It's you speaking to yourself. You see that? So you must ask yourself when you come to this text, what presuppositions do I have? Am I trying to make it say what I want it to say? Maybe I don't speak in glossolalia. Maybe I don't have the gift of speaking in tongues. And so do I want to discount that gift? And so do I try to read through the Pauline epistles with the idea that it can't exist today? Am I bringing that to the text? Because that's not what I do in myself or in my corporate worship. I don't do that myself. I don't do that in our corporate worship. But I think it's a true gift. You see the difference? It's not my gift. It's not our style of worship. But I don't think I have a right to discount it just based upon the way I exercise my own faith or we exercise our faith as a community. What presuppositions do you bring to the text? 
What ideas are you reading into it rather than allowing it to come out to you? Don't be Charlie Brown looking for ducks in the clouds. You'll see ducks every time. What presuppositions might we have about the nature of the Bible? And I think these would be good, good presuppositions. That it's inspired revelation. That God has something to say to God's people, and therefore it's inspired. That's authoritative and true. That whatever it says, I'm willing to live my life under its authority. That's when someone might say in regard to the Apostle Paul, well, yeah, you're right, Paul says that, but I don't agree with Paul. You might choose to say that. I don't choose to say that because I think it's Paul's word is an authoritative word, and I must live under the authority of Paul. I'm not equal with the authority of Paul, and even if I don't like what Paul's saying, I got to go with Paul versus myself. I think another good presupposition is the Bible is both uh, has both unity and diversity. There's both unity and diversity in the Bible. It's not all exactly alike. There are different themes throughout Scripture, and there's some tension within those themes, and that's okay. I might compare it to a good orchestra. Every instrument doesn't sound exactly the same. A gospel doesn't sound like an apocalyptic piece like Revelation, and, and Daniel doesn't sound like Psalms. Historical book, 1 Samuel, doesn't sound like Jeremiah. There are different genres, different style of literature, and yet even though everyone is not exactly the same, and though they kind of pull me in different directions, I must find the truth somewhere in the tension of those ideas. The reality is, like a wonderful orchestra, they harmonize. The violin certainly doesn't sound like the trumpet, but in a really good orchestra... You'll have both sounds making unified music. So we have legal genre, historical, poetic, prophetic, gospel, letters, apocalyptic. All those things work together. Another thing I would say, a presupposition we have, is that it is an understandable document. It's not really written in codes. I've said before, if I wanted to have a bestseller, I'd write a book said the secret codes of the Bible, unlocking them. It's not written in codes. It's written to be understood. Uh, people want a code. I think people want a code because they don't like what they know it says, so they want a code to find something else for it to say. If you just take it at face value, it's hard. Go read the Sermon on the Mount, and you'd appreciate me coming up with a code so that it doesn't mean what it says that it means. You see... I think we must come to the text imagining there was an original writer writing to an original hearer or audience, someone who would read or hear it read in church, and they were trying to communicate an idea, and that idea is understandable. Oh, I know. Sometimes there's puzzles. Sometimes there's riddles. Just read the saga of Samson. There's riddles in there. Sometimes there's apocalyptic literature that has some, well, read Daniel. There's some imagery of statues and different kinds of metals and, well, there's all sorts of things, but even those are written to be understood. They're not a secret. They're written 
as a riddle or a puzzle or a parable might be written for us to understand. So that's about the interpreter. Well, general rules for interpreting, I'll give you uh, the first tool tonight, and that is the tool of context. Context. What is the context in which I read this sentence? The context of a sentence is a sentence before it and after it. The context of sentences together is a context of the paragraph before and after it. The context of a paragraph is a context of the chapter of the Bible. Though remember, those chapters come later. They're not divinely inspired. In fact, some of them are, I think, so off. Somebody thinks a guy was riding his horse, and wherever he came down, he wrote down, we'll start chapter here, because obviously there's some of them you go, man, what'd you stop there for? It's one continuation. It was a bump in the road on the horse. That's what it was. Paul did not write chapters. He didn't write chapter 14 in his letter. He just wrote a letter. So you can kind of look past those if you want to, but it is chapters. And then from that, we go to the book. What does it say in the book of Romans? Is there a context of everything in Romans within Romans? And then you would say the context of the New Testament. Then you would say the context of the whole canon, which is Old Testament and New Testament together. Context is everything. Have you ever been quoted out of context? Did you appreciate it? Now, I'm going to do one. It's going to be about masks, and I, I, I don't, I'm, not trying to be, I'm not trying to bring that up, but it's, as someone asked, Dr. Fauci, is wearing four masks safer than wearing one mask? Well, he's got to say what? Yes. The headline the next day is, Dr. Fauci says we all need to wear four masks. Right? You see that? Did he say that? Well, not exactly. It's kind of out of context isn't it? Well, context is everything. Let me read you this. This is grammatically correct, but context gives us a flow of thought. What if there is no flow of thought? How about this? What if I wrote something like this? I heard an interesting story on the news the other night. The quarterback faded back to pass. Carbon buildup was keeping the carburetor from functioning properly. The two-inch thick stakes were burned on the outside and raw on the inside, and 10 feet high snow drifts blocked the road. The grass needed mowing. The elevator raced to the top of the 100-story building in less than a minute, and the audience booed the performance. That's grammatically correct. They all have subject, verbs, and objects. But it's hard to find a context for that kind of sentence, isn't it? The Bible's not written like that. It's has context. It's grammatically correct, but it's contextually nonsense. What if I say, that was the largest trunk I ever saw? What does that mean? You can come up with a lot of answer to that, can't you? That was the largest trunk I ever saw. Now, what if I am shopping for luggage? Does that give you a context for that sentence? What if I am out surveying trees in the forest? Does that give you a context for that sentence? What if I'm shopping around for a new car and I want to be able to travel and I say, that's the largest trunk I've ever seen. What if I'm making a trip to the zoo and have stopped by the elephant exhibit? When someone says, that's the largest trunk I have ever seen, context is everything. 
or you're absolutely lost. Are you not? Context is so important. The immediate context, like when we're reading Romans 14, the immediate context is right there in Romans 14. And the overarching context I tried to show you this morning was found back in chapter 12 and verse 8. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. And then we have a nice chapter 14 about harming the church and not making selfish decisions. That's the context. And then you have the context of the entire book, controlling the book's purpose. When it comes to the context of Romans, we tried to look and see what that context might be. And, and actually, the good thing is, some books actually tell you what they're about and have a, a theme statement. The Romans, I think the thesis statement is in Romans 1, 16 and following. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So everything in Romans needs to be in the context of that thesis that we're getting Jews and Gentiles, that the gospel's for both of them, for in it we find the the righteousness of God and God's wrath revealed on the cross of Jesus Christ. Or, or if you're reading Acts, and so other people have considered these letters and found these thesis statements, and they help so much. And if you can read the book and come up with a new thesis statement, I, I think that's wonderful. I'd like to hear your argument. But we have in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. If you read Acts, where do you start? Jerusalem, and then where do you go? Judea, and then where do you go? Samaria, and then where do you go? The remotest part of the earth. If you read Acts 1-8 and read the book of Acts in that context, you'll realize it's the marching of the gospel through the birth of the church at Pentecost to all those areas starting Jerusalem. And going all the way, where how do we end in Acts? In Rome, which gives us Romans, doesn't it? So there you go. Now, now, sometimes, like Luke will just tell you why he wrote Luke 1, 1 through 4, many have undertaken to draw an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses of service of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me also to write you an orderly account, most excellent lover of God, Theophilus, so you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What Luke's saying is this. There's a lot of different reports about what Jesus said and did, and some of them are true or some of them aren't true. So, Theophilus, I've investigated it all, and I want you to know what the truth is, and so I've written this gospel so you will know the truth. That's what Luke is, an accurate account, investigated, documented about who Jesus was and is. Why did John write John? John waits to the end tells you that he wrote it in order that men might believe and have eternal life. John 20, 30 through 31. Then we have something really interesting, like what we find in 2 Peter. Have you ever seen this? 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Listen to these. This is Peter the apostle 
writing about Paul the Apostle. This is, this is pretty powerful here. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to wisdom given to him, wrote to you. Now, Peter is writing about Paul's letters. You get what's going on here? This is big. As is also in all Paul's letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as, do all, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Do you see what just happened there? Peter called Paul's letter scripture. They distort Paul's letters. They're sometimes a little difficult to understand, just like they distort the other scriptures. Peter just called Paul's letters, inspired scripture on par with Isaiah. That's a discovery about the author authoritative nature of the New Testament bearing witness to the New Testament. Sometimes it's good to read a book in a whole setting. It's always good to read a book in a whole setting. So if you're going to do a study in 1 Thessalonians, don't read 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 and then run to the commentary. First sit down and read 1 Thessalonians. Just read the whole book. You say, but some of them are long. You need to read the whole book. Sit down and read the whole book as much as you can, and then you can go back and understand the beginning because you've read the ending. So you begin out, if you're reading something in Romans like uh, meat sacrificed to idols, you start out by saying, what else is in this book about meat and idols and Jewish scruples, and you try to understand Romans 14. I just picked that because we dealt with it this morning, so you'd want to do that. And then you'd want to say, has Paul written anything else anywhere else about meat and idols and dietary restrictions? Same guy. Has he said anything else about it? It will help me understand what he's saying here. And you would go, oh, yes, he has. In the Corinthians letters, we, we find something about that, so we would go there. Or if you were doing law in Romans, you would say, is there somewhere else that Paul has dealt with the Jewish law and what it's good for now? And, and do we live by it or we don't live about it? And you say, oh, yes, he did. He did the book of Galatians. You see that? And then, so the context is getting bigger. You're reading Romans within Romans, and then you're saying, I want to read Romans within Paul, the Pauline corpus. And then you would say, I want to read dietary restrictions in all of Scripture. There are other places outside of Paul where we learn about Jewish scruples and meat offered to idols, or the law, the Jewish law. Do the other, other epistles, Peter or Johannine epistles or Hebrews or James have something to say about any of these things. So then the whole New Testament, and then you read it within the place of the whole canon, both Old and New Testament together. You can see how that would work. You want to read about pagan and meat and idols and dietary restrictions, you can do that in Romans. Then you can take and go to Paul and do Romans and 1 Corinthians. You see if there's anything else in the New Testament. Then you would go, oh, now I'm going to go to the Old Testament. You're going to find a lot in the Old Testament about idols and pagan worship and sacrifice and dietary restrictions and which animals are clean and unclean and what that meant in Leviticus. So you have it all in one big context. Interpreter. 
Is she a believer? Is she willing to live by the authority of that which she reads? Is she willing to read in a community and not by herself, just under the tree? Does she believe that it's authoritative? Will she hold back her presuppositions and let the Word read out to her versus reading in to the Word? And when she starts getting the tools out of the toolbox, will she start with context? Will she ask, how does this sentence relate to the sentence before and after? And how does that relate to this chapter? And how does that relate to the theme of Romans? And does Romans have a theme? And does Paul say anything else, anywhere else in the context of the New Testament about this? And how does that fit in the context of all of Scripture? Interpreter in context. Two really good tools to start with. Let us pray. Oh, God, give us your grace and your peace. Folks here, here on Sunday night love your word, and they want to read it with clarity and certainty and submit their lives to it. I know you will honor with blessing their love for your word and their desire to be obedient therein. Amen.